namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang Tamang Sanghang Namasami. So, welcome to Amaravati this uh, rainy Sunday afternoon. And uh, the uh, theme for today's talk is uh, What's wrong with me? I can't get mad at the world anymore. So, maybe some of you want to leave now. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, oftentimes uh, Dhamma themes are there as an aspiration, something that we can uh, incline towards rather than uh, a description of where we're at already. Um, so reflecting on this, this theme, this title, uh, I felt it followed on somewhat from uh, one of the previous talks uh, that was entitled, There's Something Wrong With Me. And uh, that that talk in particular focused on the um, uh, the qualities of uh, self-view, how we create ourselves, and then the isolation and uh, discontent, dis-ease in the heart that gets created from the, the sense of self and and uh, buying into the sense of I and me and mine. So. Thought for the, this afternoon, this particular uh, theme, uh, what, it's, what it relates to, uh, at least the approach I, I thought I would take, would be how um, when we let go of self-view, when we let go of the sense of self, how that, that radically changes the way in which we see the world, how the, uh, the world changes when we, when, uh, we see uh, this life of ours, the who and, who and what we are, not from a position of self-view. So our habitual way, when uh, when we meet with something that we don't like, that something that's wrong with the world, uh, we have a few, variety of different things: complaining, complaining about the weather. <laughs> Someone was saying how it's ruined the go- telling me this morning how it's ruined the golf. Grumble, grumble, grumble. <laughs> uh, we complain, or we blame. We we find somebody to blame. Uh, I just spent the last fifteen years living in America, and so of course there, when you meet with suffering, you sue. <laughs> Someone must be to blame for this. Therefore, sue them, and uh, see how much money you can get out of your suffering. So those are our standard approaches to things when we feel things are wrong with the world. I'm sure we could come up with our own lists. Now we could also just cave in, crumple, and go and hide away, try and switch it all off, which is another another theme. But um, this uh, this particular manner of, of relating, or what we're talking, what we'll talk about today, is how when we, we let go of self-view, when we, we shift our perception of things, that we find that we, uh, we can't uh, complain in the same old way, uh, that we, we can't find that, that wrongness, 
that that badness, that feeling of the world being out of order, that sense of of uh, things are, are not following the pattern that that is that they should, or, or the the feeling that this isn't fair. Uh, I think last week or a couple of weeks ago, I was telling the story of how when one of our monks was uh, in uh, in the hospital in Bangkok years ago, when Ajahn Chah was still alive, and he had. Um, he thought he had saved. He he had trouble with both his knees, and so he thought he'd save time by having the the cartilage operations done on both knees at the same time. And someone was saying this morning how she <laughs> also she's the one who was complaining about the golf <laughs> being ruined because she's also a golf player, saying that she needed to have her knees done, but she was definitely going to have them done one at a time. <laughs> but this uh, restless or or this. Um, Restless motivation or, or the, the eagerness of this monk to get back to the forest said, well, I thought I'd have both my knees done at the same time. And then as I was telling the story uh, a week or two ago, how uh, this had brought all sorts of complications and difficulties and he was stuck in the hospital and, and things hadn't worked out uh, as quickly as he'd wished and the healing had taken a lot, a lot longer and it was far more painful and problematic. So he was stuck in the hospital and Ajahn Chah happened to be in Bangkok on one of his rare visits there. And he went to go and see him. He heard this this Western monk was uh, of his was was in the hospital, so he went to go and see him. And so he asked him uh, the question: "So, how's it going?" <laughs> you know how it is—the <laughs> fateful question when you when you're in when you've got a a, a list of reasonable uh, complaints about the world. And so, of course, the monk started to, to tell him and launched into this um, long story about his, his knees and the problems and the doctors and the the difficulties with the surgery and so on. And uh, uh, I guess the undercurrent of, of what he was saying and the way he was saying it was, uh, this isn't fair, it shouldn't be this way. And this isn't right, it shouldn't be happening like this. And uh, Ajahn Chah, who, who could be very cozy and comforting when he, and consoling when he wanted to be, <laughs> some, sometimes took a more blunt approach and, and his comment was, uh, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. <laughs> End of story. So, uh, not very consoling, but uh, very realistic in, in that respect. So this is the kind of um, insight that we're looking at, seeing the world from that, that, that clarity and that straightforward simplicity. If it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. This is actually the way the world is, whether we like it or not. And so, in a way, this is uh, approaching uh, the, the the quality of of, of dukkha or difficulty or things that um, that we we don't find pleasant or, or, or difficult or, or um, testing in the world from the from the point of view of loving kindness. This is sort of approaching things from the meta angle, uh, the the angle of, of loving kindness, because in essence, loving we often think of loving kindness meaning. Uh, a sentiment of may all beings be happy, uh, wanting to have uh, a, a friendly, warm feeling towards all beings. But one of the teachings that, that uh, Lumpur Sumedho has stressed over the many, many years is that metta, rather than, than metta being uh, translated as, as having love for all beings in the, in the most common English use of the term, he said it's much more to do with not dwelling in aversion. To, to have a, a quality of acceptance. So I, I tend to use a, the phrase radical acceptance, uh, basic acceptance. So this is how the world is. 
So the heart of metta is letting go of that, that feeling of, of wrongness, or it shouldn't be this way, uh, things should be, or could be different. It's saying, uh, right now, in this moment, it is this way. This is exactly how it is. And that shouldn't be, uh, and this is another point that, that Lumpur would often stress, that we shouldn't mistake acceptance for approval. Doesn't necessarily, we're not trying to pretend that we'd like the unlikable, if something is painful, or we meet with cruelty, or, or something is... Um, uh, say really uh, repellent to us or ugly or, or bitter we're not trying to make ourselves like it not trying to pretend that the bitter is sweet but really just saying this is bitterness this is what bitterness is like it, it's this way yeah, another um, story that, that comes to mind on uh, in this respect was um, how a uh, uh, Again, many years ago, in the early days of Wat Pananachat in, in Thailand, when Ajahn Sumedho had first started teaching, it was his first real stint as the abbot of a monastery and having to, to look after uh, his own students um, on a, in an ongoing, uh, an ongoing way. And there was one particular monk that he had a lot of struggles with, and, and he found himself being very critical of, and the other monk was very critical of him, and so there was a, a sort of repetitive clash between them. And um, at that time, uh, Lumpur had been, uh, somebody had sent a, a book about astrology. He's not particularly uh, a, a, an astrology buff, but somebody had sent a, an astrology book a, a around that time, and so he'd been reading that. And so, uh, as some of you might know, Lumpur's birthday's in July, so he's a Leo, July 27th, so he's a Leo. And uh, the monk that he was having a lot of... Um, clashes with or, or differences of opinion or, or uh, difficulties of getting along with was a cancer his birthday was was the the, the month before and um and so one time uh, and I, I, I my understanding from the way Lumpur told the story was that this was a a nimitter or a, an image that came up into his mind during meditation and Lumpur has got a very good visualizing mind and uh, he described how you know, when he was <coughs> uh Sitting in meditation, and one day some of the sort of memories or, or the um, recollections of some some encounter between the two of them had uh, come into his mind, and and he was uh, watching his thoughts going. He shouldn't be like this, and he shouldn't be like that, and this isn't right, and he shouldn't. <laughs> you know, he's just not. He's not, just not the way he ought to be. This image came into his mind of this large lion looming over this crab, <laughs> and that the lion is sort of. Hovering over this crab, and the crab's sort of looking up, little <laughs> eyes on stalks, and the, uh, and the lion's saying, "Why aren't you a lion?" Yeah, and the crab says, "Cause I'm a, cause I'm a crab." <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, I think he was started just chuckling to himself there in the in the meditation because it was such a, an absurd image, but it was also exactly what his mind had been doing. It's saying, you know, you're all wrong. You should be like me. <laughs> If you were like if you were like me, everything would be fine. And how completely ridiculous that is, because it's just not uh, the, the way the world uh, functions. Also, still speaking of, of Wat Pananachat, the the monastery for Western uh, monks that was um, that Lumpur established in in Thailand. Uh, some generations later, uh, when Ajahn Jayasaro was the abbot, this would have been about um, ten, fifteen years ago. <clears throat> the, uh, they had a, a group photograph of the whole monastic community 
uh, sort of taken at this time at the end of the rains retreat. So everyone's there. So they had everybody lined up, all the monks and novices and, and anagarikas, and they took this portrait photo. And then it just so happened that one of the monks was a bit of a Photoshop artist. And so that what they did was they took the group photo, like you have about 25 or 30 monks and novices in the picture, and he put Ajahn Jayasaro's face on the top of every single monk. <laughs> <laughs> so there they were all standing in the group shot, tall ones, short ones, fat ones, thin ones. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they all had Ajahn Jayasaro's face. And then they, he put on the caption, the perfect monastery. <laughs> So having that kind of, when we can't get mad at the world, is because we, we, um, we see, well, the, the, this is the way the world is. And uh, getting mad at it, getting upset, is, um, is completely crazy. It's like the, the lion demanding that the crab be like a lion. Or someone was pointing out to me, there was a, on the, the calendar in the office, they, they noticed a little quotation on one of the, the days on the calendar, which said, um, carrying around resentment is um, uh, drinking poison is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. <laughs> it's a little bit more brutal, but yeah. that uh, it's, it's that is also that ridiculous. Yeah. But it, in that kind of acceptance, so, and it's a theme that's come up at a number of these, these uh, Sunday afternoon sessions. It's really. Uh, an important point of Dhamma to, to not mistake acceptance for approval. Just because we say this is the way things are, our own intentions and our actions, our words are also part of the way things are. The choices we make are also part of the way things are. So it's easy to mistake uh, acceptance for passivity, which it's not. But rather what we're doing with that on that basis of acceptance, when, uh, if there is that quality of of loving kindness as a as a basis, as true metta. Like, this is the way the world is. This is bitter, or this is you know, a difficult relationship, or this is a, a wet day. Was well, a wet day that's brightening up. <laughs> the uh, that uh, here it is. But then, on that basis of acceptance, then we can start to make uh, choices uh, based on on wisdom and and on mindfulness. So that uh, this is a, it's important to, to bring it, this into to consciousness, because we often miss that. We often think, well, you can't be accepting, you, you've got to do something. But to me, it's, it's like a two-part uh, system. The, the two pieces need to work together. That there needs to be the basis of total acceptance. And then on that basis, that when there's an attunement of the heart to the way things are, then we can make choices between going left, going right, and choosing a particular uh, track of, of conduct. Um, and when we make choices, it doesn't mean to say that we, we are, say, dividing the world into an absolute right and wrong, but it's, say, if you drive out of the, the lane onto the, um, the A4147? Six? <laughs> I haven't quite learned the roads around here yet. The Leighton Buzzard Road. So you get down to the junction at, uh, at Great Gadsden, and if you want to go to Hemel, you go right. If you want to go to Leighton Buzzard, you go left. And it's not as though um, 
that that uh, going left is uh, is good and going right is is evil. It's just if you want to go late and buzzard, you go left. <laughs> so similarly, when we make choices about our life, when we take, make choices about how to relate to the world, and when we see that oh, well, that's a difficult relationship, then or this is a a, a, um, uh, a bitter taste, then we make choices. But it's not as though we have to hate or reject or or, or um, Curse the, the 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 thing that we uh, that we we don't like, but we can and we say, well, that's a, a taste that's not appealing, or that seems to be poisonous or dangerous. Okay, let's let's go left instead of right, so that it's not a uh, a kind of an absolute value judgment. It's just well, you want to go to Leighton Buzzard, so go left. <laughs> it's not that you hate Hamill or that there's something evil or bad about it, even though some of you might have negative perceptions about Hamill. <laughs> Maybe you think Leighton Buzzard is far more charming. But um, it's uh, it's making those kind of choices in our life that are, are based on that attunement, and then seeing uh, that if we want to develop what is wholesome and what is what is beneficial, then we steer the mind towards the things that are, are kusala that are, that are um, liable to bring uh, contentment, to bring harmony, to bring happiness within ourselves. And if we want to avoid more suffering and division and contention. And then we steer away from selfishness, from from cruelty, from um, from that which is going to cause negative feelings. So, uh, good examples of, uh, of this, because uh, uh, sometimes when we we relate to this area, we think, well, you know, if you are meeting with difficulty or there are things that are wrong in the world, you should you should act up. You should just get involved. You should jump in and, and make a, make a difference. And and uh, one of the popular bumper stickers in uh, in California is. Uh, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. <laughs> it was very popular. It was, a, a, it was coined by a, a well-known uh, cartoonist, Malcolm Hancock, is the name. Uh, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And that's the sort of, almost like you're, you're, you're not being responsible if you're not getting, if you're not getting angry. But uh, to me, uh, it's, it displays a, a much more mature human... Um, uh, state the human uh, capacity if when we uh, we meet with with difficulty or, or, or things that are out of order or things that are unjust that we we don't act out of anger and uh, I remember some years ago again these are examples from from the USA when um, some of you might have heard of uh, this woman who uh, stayed up in a redwood tree for a couple of years Julia Butterfly and to protect a redwood tree that was going to be cut down by the Pacific Lumber Company, and uh, and so she was uh, she was actually supposed to just go up the tree for a week, and then she ended up staying there for two years. So she had power. she didn't touch the ground. She didn't come down to the ground for two years. So she has some, certainly got some powers of of endurance, and uh, and also um, they managed to save the tree, and also eventually they. Um, uh, set up a protection zone of three acres of, of trees, of no cutting all around the, the, that, that uh, ancient redwood for three acres all around. And during that time, um, during that period, Ajahn Pasna and myself and a few other people from the monastery, from Abhayagiri Monastery, went up to visit her. We were invited up to go and, and see her. And, and uh, he gave her a little dhamma talk over the cell phone. <laughs> She's up in the tree. You could see it. We were up on the hillside. You could see each other sort of eye to eye, but... Uh, had to talk through the phone, so he gave her a little dhamma talk uh, over the phone. And one of the really interesting things was, was that she was getting a lot of flack 
from the environmental protection people for not getting angry. She refused to hate the lumber company and she refused to encourage the kind of um, negativity uh, to, towards them. And uh, she, just, she just would not pick that, that up. And, uh, and so this was to the, to the great frustration of many of the, of the people who are her supporters and her friends. They're saying, Julia, you've got to get angry. You've got to really get out there and condemn these people. And she just wouldn't do it. She, she had a very clear sense of, no, more anger is only going to make the problem worse. And, um, and so she was not um, swayed by the, uh, the protests of her friends. And so she stayed with that. And that, uh, I would say, in the long run, is actually what enabled the, them to come to an agreement with the lumber company and to, um, to, uh, to uh, allow the tree to be protected for her to come down. And there's a, a famous photograph of her meeting with, with um, Horowitz, the, uh, the head of the lumber company, and, she's got her ha- and she reached out. When they met, and there were sort of these two protagonists meeting face to face, she just reached out and put her hand on his heart. <laughs> Very Californian, I know, sorry. But <laughs> I know we're in England now, so of course, wouldn't do that sort of thing here, but... Uh, <laughs> In California, it was a very, it was a very neat move, <laughs> because uh, it was uh, what she was, what she was demonstrating is: I refuse to hate you. We're on the same side. I refuse to make you into something other. I refuse to hate you. And what could the guy do <laughs> except you know, uh, feel a sense of empathy or uh, wanting to find a place of, of agreement? Similarly, those who've been reading the the, uh, the news in, in recent times. Well, notice how uh, Mr. Obama was being attacked for when the the, the uh, oil spill happened in the in the Gulf of Mexico. People were really really upset because he wouldn't get angry with BP. <laughs> he wouldn't sort of demonstrate his sort of uh, his wrath and and lay into the uh, BP executives and and uh, administrators and and just start kind of <laughs> fuming and spitting and and uh, and making a, a huge noise. And uh, they, they felt, you're not being responsible, you should get angry. You know, what kind of a leader are you? You, know, <laughs> you should be getting upset. And uh, certainly he was concerned, and certainly he, he had a strong feeling for, for the, the tragedy that that was. But he also was not going to be drawn into just um, uh, creating more negativity. His concern, as far as I understand it, I, mean, I don't keep a, hu- a terribly close track on these things, but... As far as I can understand it, his concern was, okay, well, how do we stop this thing from spewing more oil into the Gulf? And, and how do we prevent this kind of thing from happening again in the future? Just blaming and condemning and, and uh, throwing his weight around as, as a president was, maybe it shows a bit of muscle and people are impressed by a few fangs. <laughs> but uh, he wanted to reach things on a, on a more uh, profound and, and basic level than that. So this is, uh, in a way, how um, uh, we can take the, the attitude of loving-kindness and this equality of acceptance. Yeah, here it is. This is a, there are all, uh, in all of our lives, there are oil spills and there are uh, precious things of ours that are being threatened or, or that um, are aspects of our life that are challenging or difficult or areas where we can be drawn into contention or, or reasonable blaming, reasonable hatred, <laughs> you know, them, <laughs> whoever they might be, you know, people are trying to shut down your hospital or people who are uh, <clears throat> trying to um, 
make uh, your life more difficult in the family, in your on your own personal life, and in your working world, and in the planet around us, in the the uh, monastery, in the in all the different dimensions of of our of our life, we can easily pick up some kind of uh, thread and say, "They're to blame. It's that idiot cousin of mine." <laughs> if he wasn't, if he could just see sense and let go, then we'd be fine. If only we'd had a different government, or we had a, you know, if I had a different partner, or if a different, I was in a different monastery. <laughs> if only it was different then, and we so easily blame and and um, find fault with the other. But when we establish a genuine heart of loving-kindness, we, we find this quality of total acceptance. Um, then we can begin to, to take action and make choices that, say, move things in a wholesome and helpful direction, but without creating uh, opposition, without, uh, in a way, creating the other, without, um, say... Uh, holding up and creating some kind of fundamental divide between ourselves and others. In a, in a sense, metta is about recognizing we're all on the same side, it's all us. <laughs> we're all part of the same Dhamma, the same natural order. Now, a, n- a number of years ago, I had... Um, on this theme, I had a very interesting um, uh, succession of dreams. Not that I'm going to turn this into a dream workshop, but this is kind of... It's a... Uh, again, apologies if this sounds too Californian, but... <laughs> but this was very interesting in terms of Dhamma, because for years and years I'd had this um, regular nightmare. Yeah, a really unpleasant dream. And in these, in these, these nightmares... This was into, well into my monastic life as well. There would be some kind of, of conflict going on, and I would feel there was some sort of threat that there were these other personal, these other people, and they were dangerous. They were going to attack me. And in these various dreams, sometimes there would be like sort of hand-to-hand fighting, and I'd be thumping away at this person, or throwing rocks at them, or or kind of uh, running running away, and and. Uh, trying to hide and then uh, jumping out and thumping away with a stick or whatever. And it varied from time to time. This was over many, many years, about once every six months or so, I'd get one of these dreams. And so the, the actual weaponry changed, <laughs> the scenario changed a bit. But the, the basic form was um, the feeling of a threat and then trying to protect myself by, by violence, uh, but the, every time that, that these dreams uh, occurred, and uh, in each of these scenarios, it always seemed to be that uh, I was thumping away, but I never actually got hurt. Nothing ever really harmed me. And also, I had this feeling that nothing that I was doing actually harmed the other. <laughs> it was always a bit vague who the, the other was, who the, the enemy or the threat was. And... Um, uh, and so no matter how hard I thumped and, and, uh, and struggled, it didn't seem to have any effect. And, and I never actually got hurt. So those two elements were, turned out to be quite significant. So um, there, on the, the, the first trip that I, I made to the, to the United States in 1990, it was the first time I was staying in San Francisco, then I had another one of these dreams. And it was a very lucid dream. It was very vivid. And... Uh, so that there I was in this in this kind of contention, 
scenario once more and I was wrestling with this, this other character. And I thought, oh, it's that fighting dream again. Now, and, and, but this time it's really clear and this is all in full colour. And I can really feel this other person where it's sort of struggling away, sort of hands sort of locked around each other's shoulders and wrestling away. And I thought, now it's one of those dreams. Now who is it that I'm fighting against? Because this keeps happening. This has been going on for years. So who is it that I'm, that I'm fighting here? And then um, as, I, as that thought formed in my mind, because as I said, it was a very lucid dream, so I, could, I was able to think consciously within it. Then the other character, the other protagonist, lifted up his head. And guess who it was? <laughs> it was me. <laughs> And there was this, this, this very familiar face lifted up and sort of, Hi! <laughs> Bet you're surprised to see me! <laughs> so then, I, I, I was. <laughs> and then I woke up. I thought, well, well that's interesting. So if that, if that one that I, that I was wrestling against was me, then who's this that's doing the wrestling? So very curious. And so... Um, so I realized that, uh, that you know, there, was, um, there, was a, there was a message <laughs> in this, in the, uh, and this uh, really got my attention. Before, it had just been a strange kind of curiosity. I thought, well, I wonder what that's about. Maybe I've got a su- suppressed violent streak that's just trying to work itself out. But when, it, uh, when that, I had that dream there in San Francisco, it, it uh, sort of rang a little bell and said, there's probably a, a message here. <laughs> now, what's, what's this about? And then uh, a, a while later, a few months later, I had another one of these dreams. But instead of me being in the role of the, the, the thumper, I was the thumpy. <laughs> so rather than there being sort of me feeling threatened and then uh, trying to fend off this supposed attacker, rather uh, I was in the role of being attacked by this other figure. And in this, this other dream, uh, this uh, the the uh, the other protagonist was in uh, the form of a, a, uh, someone who used to uh, I used to know years ago who was um, a, a very uh, kind of conceited professorial type in fact, had many many redeeming features <laughs> very knowledgeable but um, in a way exuded egotism like you know, I am the great I am. <laughs> So very, very proud of his sort of extraordinarily encyclopedic knowledge and had a sort of manner of walking <laughs> that was uh, ex- you know, extraordinarily pompous and made him look very silly. But, uh, and so it was in a way, in the dream had picked up this character as a sort of caricature of egotism, this uh, proud professor. And for some reason, this professor in the, in the dream was extraordinarily angry and upset and came charging towards me and he was so enraged, his face was almost purple, like purple with affronted pride, and starts lamming into me and thump, 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 thump. And I'm just standing there going, oh, poor fellow. <laughs> he seems really upset about something. <laughs> and just as it had been in, uh, when I'd been doing the thumping, it seemed to have absolutely no effect. This fellow was, was thumping away at me and and there was no uh, no uncomfortable sensation at all, and and he was just thrashing away and having no effect. And what came up within me was a sense of of compassion. Oh, poor fellow. And eventually, I just thought, well, this is a bit of a waste of time standing here getting thumped to no avail. <laughs> so I might as well just 
uh, take myself off. And so I just sort of gently walked away and, and uh, left him to it. Yeah. So um, what all of that said to me, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not really a, a great interpreter of dreams, but what seemed to be uh, there contained the message that was contained within these, and it seemed to be spelled out pretty, pretty large, was that when we take the position of, uh, of self, when we attach to self-view, we find ourselves wrestling against nature, wrestling against the way things are. We're struggling against Dhamma, thumping away against Dhamma, the way that reality is. And uh, you know, frustratedly getting annoyed at the aging process or why people don't like us or don't understand us or, or you know, why the weather can't be more convenient. <laughs> why have I got the wrong clothing on today? And... Uh, that we we are just like the 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 original me in that uh, in the earlier dreams, thumping away, wrestling against the way things are to absolutely no avail, like complaining against the Dhamma. You know, you shouldn't be this way. <laughs> and then a, a shift can happen within us, where we we go from taking the position of of self view to the position of Dhamma. Like like Lumpur Cha would say, it's not just a matter of of hearing Dhamma, practicing Dhamma, realizing Dhamma, but it's also eventually a matter of being Dhamma itself, you know, seeing that everything that you are, uh, men, uh, the, all of our mental world, our physical world, is all part of nature, it's all, it's all Dhamma. And so that when that shift happens within us, when uh, we let go of self-view, then just as was characterized in that dream, it's like the, you, you're, you're taking the position of, of, uh, of being... Um, in the, the 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 role of the Dhamma itself, and the the, the world is sort of thumping away at you, <laughs> or the e- the egotistical splutterings are, are thumping away, and it's just like you know the Dhamma is completely unmoved. It's like, well, okay, poor thing, <laughs> never mind. And uh, that it's uh, it was a very pe- in the dream. It's also the mood was one of, of, of peacefulness and kindness and, and easefulness. So I was very when I woke up from that dream, I thought. Well, that was good. <laughs> Not that I'm making it as any kind of claim about enlightenment or anything, but it was just sometimes our unconscious minds characterize uh, aspects of our life and our practice in ways that our, our thinking mind can be so busy with the affairs of the day that they that they can't get through to the surface. So sometimes it's in the meditation world, or like with Ajahn Sumedho and the, the lion and the crab, or sometimes through the dream world, those insights bubble to the surface. So the, the Buddha said, um, similarly, not quite so graphically <laughs> in this instance, but uh, in the uh, in the Sangyutta, the, the connected discourses, there's a um, a passage in the Kanda Sangyutta where the Buddha says, yeah, "I do not contend with the world, but the world contends with me. Uh, a proponent of the Dhamma does not uh, does not dispute with anything in the world." So now yeah, there's a very interesting turn of phrase uh, I do not dispute with the world the world disputes with me so that also that uh, it's important to recognize that even a fully enlightened being like the Buddha had plenty of people that were opposed to him or uh, found fault with what he said and did but uh, he was n- not disturbed or upset or, or intimidated by that you know, I, I do not dispute with the world the world disputes with me you know, a proponent of the Dhamma does not dispute with anything in the world. 
There's also another passage in the Sangita in the uh, seventh um, section, uh, and it's called uh, uh, Akos- uh, it's called Akosaka, which means um, the abusive, and it's an encounter between the Buddha and this Brahmin called Akosaka, which literally means uh, Bharadvaja Akosaka, which means uh, Bharadvaja the abusive. So he's remembered for posterity <laughs> as Bharadvaja the abusive, even though he later became an arahant. <laughs> he's still got known as Akosaka, the abusive. And it, the story goes that uh, his brother, uh, the brother of this Brahmin, had already become a disciple of the Buddha and had uh, entered the monastic life. And he, so he was really upset about this. And while the Buddha was on his arms round in the, in the town, then Akosaka Bharadvaja came up to him in the street and started sort of railing against him and accusing him and attacking him and reviling him and, and uh, finding fault. And uh, the Buddha patiently listens to him and says, um, Bharadvaja, is it ever the case that people come and visit you uh, in your home, family or friends? Do, do people ever drop by? He says, yes, of course they do. You know, an ordinary household, people come and visit me all the time. Had an English accent, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so then the, uh, the Buddha said, well, is it the case if people come and visit uh, uh, family or friends, relatives, do you ever offer them any kind of food or drink or other refreshments? He said, well, of course I do. It's a normal, polite thing to do. Of course I offer them food, refreshments, anything that would be suitable. Why do you ask? And the Buddha said, well, now if, you, if they come to your home and you offer them food and refreshments and such like, and they decline to accept them, they, 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 don't, uh, they don't take those, what you offer them, to whom do those, those uh, things belong, the food and the other refreshments and the drink? Who does that, to whom does that belong? And uh, Akosaka says, well, of course, they still belong to me. I mean, they haven't, my visitors haven't accepted them, so they're still mine. You know, what do you want about? And the, the Buddha said, well, Bharadvaja, you offer me your anger but I don't accept it. So it still belongs to you. <laughs> still belongs to you, Bharadvaja. <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> so it's like he's thrown down the, he whacked him in the face and thrown down the gauntlet and say, okay, pick up, you know, pick up the, the glove, let, you know, let's have a duel. And the Buddha says, nice glove. <laughs> you know, that, uh, he's not going to pick up the challenge. He's not going to respond to that aggression with, with aggression in, in return. Uh, so this is a really, uh, a, a really powerful um, message, isn't it? Where he's, he points out, you know, it's still, it's yours, you're carrying it around, like I was saying with the resentment being like poison, you, you drinking poison and waking, waiting for the other person to die. So then the, the, the dialogue continues between the, the Buddha and Bharadvaja, and he said how... You know, one who responds to to anger with anger just you know, creates more of a, a problem for themselves. But one who responds to ang- to anger with, with patience, one who restrains their own uh, neg- uh, negativity, they they uh, they win a battle that is that is hard to win. They uh, they make a conquest that is is hard to win. And to when you when you meet with abuse, when you meet with with hardship, with with anger. To respond with patience and kindness, you know, this is uh, the the sign of a someone who is who is really free, who is really liberated. And uh, through that exchange, then Bharadvaja became his disciple, and 
eventually became an arahant. And then the next sutta, the third one in that section, is the, the third brother, <laughs> who's really annoyed that his two elder brothers have both become monks, and so then he lays into the Buddha in the same way. And of course, as happens in these things, he ends up you know, becoming a disciple as well. So these, these are teachings about how to handle contention and the frictions with the world. You know, we had uh, one of the, another of the, the talks we had a few weeks ago was on um, resistance and transformation. And so in a similar way that we can, uh, we can see how when things are difficult, we can easily take arms against that and to, to struggle against that, to blame, to criticize. But if we establish this attitude of, of loving kindness, then that is a tremendous support to, to, to finding that place where we can't find fault with the world. So the other angle of approach is through, uh, through this uh, developing the, the, the basic attitude also of non-contention and, and using the, the avenue of approach of mindfulness and wisdom to support that. Uh, and these, as I said before, these things work together. Loving kindness, metta, and mindfulness and wisdom—they they work as a, a as a partnership. But we can look at both of those as uh, different aspects of it. So, interestingly enough, one of the the uh, ways that the Buddha talked about freeing the heart from contention, like how how to get to that place where, when you're attacked or or criticized or blamed. Um, when someone lays into you, whether it's justified or not, how do you find that place of patience and kindness uh, and non-contention? And uh, there's a, a very significant teaching in, in the Majjhima Nikaya, um, Sutta number 18, the Madhu, Madhu Pindika Sutta, where the, the Buddha talks about this very directly. And interestingly enough, uh, he points to uh, what's called papancha, or conceptual proliferation, as being the roots of uh, of conflict, and uh, the scenario starts with uh, the Buddha sitting under a tree in the forest, and then another you know, Brahmins get a lot of bad. <laughs> got a, they're, the, they're the fall guys in many of the Buddhist tales. So. Just like in in the Mahayana sutras, the Theravadans come out looking really stupid, but in the, in the Pali scriptures, the Brahmins come out looking really stupid. So you know, it's called mythic defamation in the. <laughs> In the trade, it is. So Joseph Campbell came up with that wonderful term, mythic defamation. The ones who are always the, the fall guys, the you know the the, the fools. So this arrogant Brahmin. <laughs> so I even had an arrogant Brahmin in my uh, in my dream. You know, <laughs> the, that professor was a Brahmin. <laughs> he was <laughs> really. He was very very proud of being a Brahmin too. <laughs> So the Buddha's sitting under a tree in the forest and this Brahmin, Dandapani, comes swaggering through the woods and he's a, a, something of a professional debater. Uh, that, uh, he is a, a Brahmin scholar and pundit and so he uh, um, made his, his life, his living out of uh, engaging in, in, in um, philosophical debate with people. So he came up to the Buddha and Dandapani means stick in hand so he's swaggering along with his walking stick stands in front of the Buddha and says, um, So, uh, Venerable Wanderer, uh, what kind of doctrine do you proclaim? What kind of teaching do you assert? And the Buddha, not just uh, he, uh, seeing him and hearing the words that he spoke, but also uh, discerning where he was coming from, said, uh, 
I assert and I proclaim such a doctrine that espouses non-contention with anyone in the world. And at that, Dandapani's, uh, as it says, he's wagged his tongue from his head from side to side, clicked his tongue, furrowed his brow into three lines, <laughs> and went off shaking his head with nothing to say, because <laughs> he was looking for a fight. You know, in the same way, he's looking for an argument. And the Buddha said, I, I've, "I espouse such a doctrine that uh, uh, encourages non-contention with anybody. So, do you want to fight?" Please go and find one, <laughs> but you won't find one here. So uh, when he went back to the monastery and, uh, and was, was talking with the other Sangha members there and, and described his incident, then um, he, talked, uh, he, he said, uh, uh, made a few comments about how it's um, through uh, attachment to perceptions and the conceptual proliferation that arises from that that, that gives birth to all of the struggles and quarrels and wrangling and brawling in, in, the, in the world. And that uh, when the heart is free from that, that relishing of perceptions, then we've, we, are, we are able to, to completely end, to cut off uh, all brawling, wrangling, malicious speech, quarreling and, and fighting. You know, that ceases without remainder. And then he went off into his kuti and left everybody behind. So then they thought, well, but how do you do that? <laughs> he said, you know, by, by not relishing perceptions, by letting go of perceptions, by not letting the mind not dwelling on conceptual proliferations. But, but how do you do that? So uh, they went and found, uh, the monks that were there went and found Mahakachana, because Mahakachana was the one who had the reputation for being able to expound in detail uh, statements that the Buddha had made in brief. So when the Buddha made these little cryptic asides and they, they, Mahakachana was the one they'd say, could you explain that? Or what did he mean when he said that? And uh, it's, it's actually Mahakachana who spells things out in, in the most helpful detail. And so he describes uh, what, the, what the, the Buddha was talking about in this. And uh, he said, well, when the, take for example, when the eye views forms, when, the, when there's the eye and visible forms and eye, and eye consciousness, the, the coming together of those three, you have contact, eye contact. When there's contact, that gives rise to feeling, pleasant feeling, painful feeling, or neutral feeling. That feeling then gives rise to perception, sanya. So sanya, the English word sign is related to sanya. So sanya literally means the the uh, designation of a particular thing, so that it's just the initial labeling, even before thought, it's just saying red, you know, blue, uh, loud, quiet. Uh, it's the, the basic perceptual categorization, the, the patterning of perceptions is sanya. Then uh, sanya leads to vitaka. Vitaka means thinking. So then, the thinking mind comes in, there's a perception, and then the thinking mind says, red, gold, blue, <laughs> yeah, wood, uh, sound, English, Sunday. <laughs> it's uh, the basic naming of, of, a, of a particular pattern of perception. And then, uh, then vitaka, or thinking, then leads to papancha. And so papancha is this wonderful word for which English has no perfect equivalent but it's often translated as conceptual proliferation or prolixity. And so it's, uh, I think we're all familiar with the phenomenon. 
It's the mind taking a simple thought like uh, rainy and going, why does it always have to rain on Sundays? It's not really fair. It was really sunny yesterday. I, I especially stayed home, but then I come out here on... This is Papancha, <laughs> our old friend. <laughs> so that is uh, the mind taking hold of a thought and then running with it. And then that Papancha then leads to uh, the, the mind buying into that stream of thought and then it, it finally ripens in what's called Papancha Sanya Sankara, which is the uh, multiplicity of perceptions and notions that um, uh, arise from uh, the, these patterns of thinking and lead to that feeling of, of oppression or that the beset the heart that leads basically to the feeling of me here oppressed by the world or uh, in a state of tension with the world out there. So is this a familiar pattern? <laughs> this sound uh, very well known to us. So that uh, Mahakachana points, points out this, this particular succession and says this is how uh, all of the, the brawling, wrangling, struggling, uh, malicious speech, quarreling and disputing, this is how we end up resorting to weapons and, and, uh, and strife and, and what causes contention in the world is this the mind being drawn down these these threads of of conceptual proliferation. So uh, when we see that this is how contention arises, or, or if we explore this and see see how this works, when we we notice the mind following a, a particular pattern of conceptual proliferation, um, and uh, it, how it takes a single perception or a thought and jumps on it and, and runs away with it, when we we notice that happening. What we find we can do, in, uh, and what's a very helpful practice, is to to follow that back, to see where it came from. So, say you have a particular pet peeve about people talking about dreams in Dhamma talks. <laughs> oh God, I can't stand it. So, as soon as a, 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 you know the the monk giving a Dhamma talk says, "I had a, I had a really interesting dream," then the dream. <gasps> It's a, you know, then the mind jumps on that and, and starts playing the tape of, I can't stand this, I, you know, how, how can people... <laughs> so then, there you are, you've missed the next five minutes of the Dhamma talk because you're so busy with your, your, our internal diatribe. And then we think, well, hang on a minute, wait, 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 how did I end up here? And so, you know, there you are, um, you know, you're halfway through composing a letter to Ajahn Sumedho saying... <laughs> I don't see how you can possibly have this idiot put in position of being abbot of Amravati. He's talking about his stupid dreams in a Dhamma talk. And there you are, halfway through the, this, this letter, and you think, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's still giving the Dhamma talk. He hasn't even finished yet. <laughs> so now how did I get into this irate letter composition? So, oh, yeah, there was, there was the... He mentioned the word dream. I didn't even hear what the dream was about. <laughs> but he mentioned that word dream. So then, then that was just a sound. That was just ear consciousness. It started off just with sound, and then the mind took that that uh, contact, and then there was uh, the uh, the perception of a, of a word, and then the picking up the meaning of it, the vitaka, and then boom, <laughs> like the the match into the hay barn, the 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 thought then triggered this you know, habitual stream. Look at that. And it also started with a single word. That's where it began. 
So we, when we, we see uh, the mind uh, taking those tracks, we can train ourselves to follow it back to where it came from. And one of the interesting things when we do this is that the further you go back down the track to where it came from, the simpler everything gets. And uh, one of the epithets of the Buddha was nipapancha, which means one who does not proliferate. <laughs> the one who's free from conceptual proliferation, nipapancha. And so when we, we follow this, uh, th these uh, st uh, strings, these trains of, of thought and proliferation back to their source, we find the closer that we stay to the, the, the simplicity and naturalness of feeling and perception, then the more there's a, 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 a direct apperception of, of the world. There's not sen a sense of me here and the world out there. There's the, the flow of experience that's known here within the sphere of awareness. There's uh, form and feeling, perception, uh, thought arising and ceasing, and the mind isn't caught up in it or carried away by it. There's a, a tremendous beauty and simplicity in that, and that no sense of self-view is created out of that. So the closer that we, the, the mind stays, uh, the attention stays to the, the realm of, of perception and feeling, uh, and, uh, and is restrained from running off into papancha, or as we were talking about when, with the um, cycle of dependent origination, when the, the, the grasping, clinging, uh, desire mind doesn't grab hold of it, when we stay with that, the realm of feeling and perception, life is very, very simple and very, uh, very easy to establish that in, in a quality of harmony. So when we stay at that point, then we, we find that the we can't find anything wrong with the world. We can't get mad at the world anymore because the papancha, <laughs> once the papancha stops, uh, it's really hard to create that, that quality of contention. But as long as the, the papancha is running, then that, that contention will be continually caused. So many of us, I'm sure all of us, can probably come up with scenarios of, of how this this works. But it, it's, it, and it's, uh, even though I, you can describe it in a, a few minutes like this, isn't it curious how much of our life, how much energy we can burn <laughs> on those endless strings of, of recreating the past, you know, re, uh, creating the future, and uh, just the hours and hours of mental uh, energy and the time that is spent pursuing these uh, fabricated worlds, and uh, how peaceful and how uh, much more harmonious life would be if we didn't, if we didn't have to. You know, if we could you know, break the habit. So when we when we, we really see that and look at that, or just looking at examples of our own lives, of like how much grief we've created for ourselves in the past, over buying into our, our fears and thoughts and and uh, recollections, painful memories, and past resentments, and so on, then we can we can see, wow, this is really worth developing, yeah, freeing the heart from papancha. This is really a way that we can learn how to, to not uh, find fault with the world. Uh, what we don't realize is that this is a, a choice that we have. And one of the great blessings of practicing Buddha Dhamma, and particularly practicing meditation in this respect, establishing the heart of loving-kindness, that quality of acceptance. And then on that basis of that uh, acceptance and, and attunement of the heart to the, to the Dhamma, then letting choices be made based on mindfulness and wisdom. Once we establish that, then we uh, we realize that 
um, we can have a, a far more harmonious and, and easeful life. We often don't realize we have a choice because we feel pulled, we're dragged along by our, our habits, but we do have a choice. And the more that we, we train the mind, we use bhavana uh, to cultivate mindfulness and wisdom, to cultivate loving-kindness, then the more we're, we're learning the skill of using these, these tools of how not to, to create conceptual proliferation, how not to, to dwell in aversion. And the blessings are, are really extraordinary. And maybe one, one last story that I'll tell is um, how uh, when... Uh, I mean, it was back in 1989, I think, and uh, Master, Master Xuanhua and a number of his nuns and monks came to visit Europe. Uh, this is the, the great Chinese master who lives near Bayagiri Monastery and who gave us half of the land there. He was visiting England and staying here at Amravati. And uh, we had a very nice session one afternoon just with the, the monastic community having an informal gathering with him together in the, uh, in the retreat center, shrine room we were using at the time. And... Uh, Ajahn Sajito uh, asked him a question about, uh, it was a, a, a kind of technical question about samadhi, about concentration. And uh, Master Hua didn't know, or at least he shouldn't have known, <laughs> that Ajahn Sajito was about to go off on pilgrimage for about six months to India. He was planning to walk, go on a thousand mile walk around all of the Buddhist holy places in India. So technically, Master Hua didn't know that. <laughs> Ajahn Sajito. And so Ajahn Sajito had asked this technical question about samadhi. And so Master Hua ignored the samadhi thing altogether. And he said, when you go to practice in the place of the Buddha, do not find fault with anyone or anything. So that was his advice (laughs) that Ajahn Sajito took with him on his pilgrimage and it it literally saved his life. Because at a certain point, as uh, uh, many of you probably know, Ajahn Sujito and Nick Scott were, were surrounded by uh, a group of bandits um, armed with axes and, and wooden staves. And uh, uh, literally one of them, the, the, the leader of the bandits, actually had an axe over Ajahn Sujito's head, with, you know, ready to bring it down. And at that moment, he remembered Ajahn, uh, Master Hua's advice and thought, well... I'm not going to get out of this one, and I'm not, you know, there's no point trying to run away or anything, so okay. Namo tasa bhagavato. So he got through the Namo tasa, and then he started on, on, he was about to start the three refuges, and then he got a bit cheeky, because he went. <laughs> he was really pushing his luck. <laughs> but, and then he started reciting the three refuges, and uh, the guy couldn't bring the axe down as is evidenced by the fact that Ajahn Sujito is still with us. So, not finding fault. He said, okay, that not contending against even someone who's about to bring an axe down in your head. So I was very impressed by that story. And when I, a number of years later, went to spend a year in India on pilgrimage, I took that to heart and I thought, okay, can I make that my practice? Can I spend a year in India and not find fault with anyone or anything? And that is so helpful to have that as a, as a test. And that it's extraordinary, but a thousand times, 10,000 times a day, we are confronted with possibilities of contention, particularly in India, dealing with public transport <laughs> <laughs> and the wonderful world of Indian officialdom. Even going to the post office can be a, 
a very uh, involved experience. <laughs> but if you choose to not contend, every every moment is is uh, absolutely okay. And so that uh, I would encourage people to to take this to heart: the, these possibilities that if we develop loving kindness, we develop mindfulness and wisdom, we develop this heart of non-contention, we can truly live uh, in, in such a way that uh, we will not be able to get mad at the world anymore. So on that point, I will finish this talk and offer these thoughts for reflection. You know what happens next. <laughs> so. We'll aim to get back together about 20 past after tea. <laughs>